You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to check the tides or sail trim, well, to talk about the most important topics of the day. Today's topic is canvassing your boat. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Scanmar International. Scanmar designs and manufactures high-quality cruising products for both power and sailing vessels. Scanmar is probably best known for the monitor wind vane. Between Ben and I, we've had three monitor wind vanes, one on each of our boats. And especially when you're sailing solo or on long passages, it's like having an extra crew aboard. We made a video about how it works. It's called Monitor Wind Vane Explainer on our YouTube channel, Sailing Simplicity. And for even more information, check out scanmarinternational.com. Why don't we um, just get a little quick little intro? Who we got here? We've got Andy Cross. Andy, tell me tell me about a little about yourself, just so I can get a little background. So um, I'm the editor of 48 North Sailing Magazine, based out of out of Seattle and Port Townsend, uh, Washington, and that's where we started kind of our cruising journey. My wife and I, and we have two kids that are now seven and five, um, but we left Seattle in 2012, um, kind of cruised around the Northwest, um, did a lot of BC, went around Vancouver Island, um, did a bit of racing on the boat, and then sailed up to Alaska with the intention of kind of spending one summer there and then heading for Mexico. Well, one summer turned into uh, three summers and two winters of living in Alaska. And uh, then we finally sailed down to Mexico last year. So 2019, we made the trek down the coast and made one big hop from from Alaska to San Francisco and then started taking our time working our way down the coast. And uh, the boat right now is in Barra de Navidad in Mexico. And uh, we'll, we'll get back to it in September and keep cruising, whatever that means <laughs> in this crazy world. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. That's right. All right. That sounds pretty cool, man. I'd love to get up to Alaska. Pretty interesting stuff. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of these days. What about you, Jamie? Uh, From southeastern New England and grew up sailing there. Became a sailmaker in, uh, what, mid-80s? And uh, was a sailmaker for about 10 years. Everything from America's Cup down to, and Whitbread, and down to one design boats. And uh, then we moved out to the West Coast, um, <clears throat> coastal sailing in Puget Sound for a while, and we left in 2008 and have been cruising full-time since with a circumnavigation. All right, good deal. Uh, the sailmaking stuff, I always forget about that. You actually did it for a while. That's really neat. I did. I was a sail designer and sailmaker. You tell me what, about what you're doing with Zoom Sails and how, that's, how that came to be. Zoom Sails, so... When we went cruising, um, I had people, I hadn't been sailmaking actively for a while, but I had uh, cruising friends saying, oh, can you get back into this because I'm so tired of getting ripped off by by sailmakers, really overcharging and not getting great sails. I said no for a long time because they wanted me to get involved in building sails overseas, and I didn't think it was possible to do well. And uh, when I was in Borneo, um, I bumped into Phil Auger, who was also cruising. He's a Kiwi sailmaker. It's kind of a similar background to mine, and we got chatting, and he'd been building sails overseas for a while uh, since he decided to go cruising, and uh, we we connected, and that was um, that was my start working with Phil. Mm. Okay, that's about when I 
Almost got that first sale from you, isn't it? No, I think that... Probably 2014. 2014. Yeah, I think it was a little bit later, but yep, that's right. Yep. Okay, good. Good, good. And then, Andy, how do you know Jamie? Uh, Jamie and, and Bian and I have quite a few uh, mutual friends uh, from the Seattle area. So we kind of got connected, you know, virtually just uh, at first. And then uh, I did a little work for Swiftsure Yachts and um, and I met Jamie and Bian when I was working for them and delivering some boats um, in Annapolis. We actually met and hung out. And then um, when it was time for us to get new sales, it was like, all right, I'll call Jamie and we'll get it figured out. So. That's where we kind of our background. Oh, super! You know, we we had uh, our, we bought our boat through Swiftsure, actually, with Brad Baker. Yeah, great guys. Yeah, yeah, really great guys. Wow, so cool. Yeah, nice to have a little connection there with that. That's great. Um, all right, cool. So you bought your boat, Andy. Uh, when was that? 2012. Actually, we bought it from Swiftsure too. That's how we that's how we got to know them. So we bought it in 2012 in Seattle, and uh, set out. Um, shortly after that, and what kind of sales? Start what kind of sales were on board, and how had that go with buying the boat and uh, the sales that were on board? So our our boat is a, a Grand Soleil 39. It's a 1984. And so when we bought the boat, we knew it, it had done a, a Pacific loop um, down with uh, started with Jamie and Bian, uh, and it did a little Pacific loop. And it, when we got it, we knew it needed new sails um, eventually. That's one of those you know boxes we just knew it needed to we needed to tick at some point and so we kind of waited and waited and we had a it was an old north sales main and uh i think it was a we had a um doyle genoa big genoa that was a bit unruly but um and so yeah we just knew it before we actually set out um on doing some real cruising heading leaving alaska we knew we needed new sales and so uh, that's when i got a hold of jamie and we just worked through a Worked through a whole package of what we needed and what we wanted, and figured it out from there. I got you. Do you, Jamie? You remember that pretty well? It was a while ago, right? Oh, I I remember it. Yeah, absolutely. It was 2018, I think, is when we started. Oh, okay. Oh, so it wasn't that long ago. Okay, cool. So it wasn't in 13 when you bought the boat. All right. So you sailed on those old sails for a while, then? Yeah, we did. We even raced on those old old sails for a while. We did the Swiftsure race. We did uh, Oregon offshore. We did a bunch of local stuff around Puget Sound and. Um, but by the time we were in Alaska, they were they were just done. It was it was over for those. So um, we definitely got got a lot of use out of them and a lot of miles. But it was time to, to move so, up. So well, I mean, let's just jump into it. What what did you get? What, how did you know they were done? What was the uh, the telltale sign? And then let's talk about what you guys dis- discussed and decided to do uh, for a new sale package. Well, so I have a, a background in, in racing. I grew up racing, and um, you can just tell when a sail is blown out when it's you know when it's when it's old. And our sails were thoroughly blown out, um, just really really deep draft and uh, not a very good shape. Uh, frustrating to sail upwind at times, especially against boats that had uh, newer sails or even just better sails. And so. Um, yeah, and then also just the test of, you know, the UV cover on the Genoa was going. Um, some of the, the the head and the tack and the clues were all wearing out, and so it, it was pretty obvious. So we also knew that we wanted to, you know, start um, cruising farther. So that meant California, meant Mexico, and wherever that is afterwards. And so we wanted it, we wanted sails that were going to be performance oriented because I'm, I'm a performance oriented sailor, and we have a perf- kind of a performance cruising boat. Um, and then we also wanted something that would be durable. 
Um, and then we also wanted to change it up a little bit with, we didn't really want to have that one, that, that big 135, 140 Genoa um, as, a, as a full-time head sale. And so that's kind of where we got in with Jamie and I talked did a lot of back and forth on what was going to be the best sale for the moment and for, for what we were doing. And so we decided on a, um, what was it, a 120 or 115, and uh, then we went with a uh, Code Zero, a cruising Code Zero. And so to get the, to make the cruising code zero happen, we had to we had fabricated a uh, retractable bowsprit um, out of aluminum that I had. I worked with uh, a couple different uh, designers, and we finally got something we liked and uh, got the the measurements on that, and it was go time. What was the whole package you guys ended up with? One twenty, you said, code zero. Yeah, one tw- one twenty, uh, one sixty code zero in a main in a main sail. So and we had, we did all that in Hydronet. Uh, which I really, really love. You know, so we're, we're almost two years into the sales, and they're just they still look amazing. And so, so Jamie, when you guys were discussing this, what were some of the things you were you were thinking about for his boat? Well, it always starts with what are your intentions, <clears throat> because I think that um, knowing where people want to go and what they want to do uh, with their boat and their sails is is um, it's important to match to that. Uh, it's easy to just throw out some, you know junky Dacron sales or, or oh, try to talk you into a laminate or something like that because there's better money in that. But that, that has no value for me. Um, so it's try to figure out, are you going multi-regional? What are the conditions generally going to be like? Are you one region? Uh, do you want these things to last forever? Do you love replacing your sales every four years? So it's this kind of range of... of um, of, of questions to help me pin down what makes sense in a set of sales. Mm-hmm. And then, so just, just bounce me through maybe just quickly, what are those criteria that would determine what kind of sale? You guys went Hydronet, so let's just talk about why, why Hydronet for these guys. Yeah, so Hydronet is a hybrid woven Dyneema and Dacron uh, sailcloth. It's, um, it's, in my view, at this point, it is the best um, cruising sailcloth out there, uh, unless you have a really big budget and can replace your sails every, every three or four years. Uh, and for these guys, because they did want to keep some performance, um, and, main, that, and that's two factors. One, it's maintaining sail shape. Uh, and two, it's doing that without making the sails overly heavy. And so while, while Hydronet doesn't uh, compete weight-wise to carbon laminate sailcloth, it's still um, very, very low stretch uh, compared to um, uh, typical Dacron. Now, I can make Dacron sails that are low stretch, but it means that I need to increase the fiber density. So um, adding a ply to the leech of the sail makes the sails really heavy, and then you impact performance that way. So it's a great balance between um, cruising toughness and and, uh, and and shape holding ability um, without getting overly heavy. Okay, cool. And then um, and the 120, what was the idea behind the 120? You want something smaller? Yeah, the 120, um, what, what, what I find is that when boats sail in one region, it's easy to specify uh, a head sole size based on that region. And Puget Sound tends to be pretty light. Uh, unless you like sailing in the in the shoulder season or enter the winter, and then it can be more blustery. But generally, it's pretty light, so a larger sail would make sense. But if you're going multi-regional, where else are you going? What are the conditions going to be like there? And and most typically, boats that are doing 
sailing down to Mexico, which tends to be light as well. But if they're going to cross the Pacific and you're in squalls a lot of the time and in more windy regions, then uh, um, 110 plus or minus 10% is a good benchmark. And then what you do is you tend to look at the boat's specific characteristics and what it can do. Is it a boat that's got a shallow draft and it tends to lay over more easily, then I may skew down a little bit. If the boat's got a thin keel and is a little bit stiffer, then maybe she can handle a little bit more than 110. And so it's finding that balance. Yeah, I think, what did we do, a 110 or a 115 tops? I think it was about a 110 for our jib. I think you guys um, landed at 110 as well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is just perfect because uh, I can fly that in pretty decent breeze, but I don't have to roll it up until I see over 15, and I love that. It's also a little bit easier for, for sail handling. Tacking with, you know, the boats that we have, usually there's an inner, inner force day often enough, and and you often have, um, have have crew on, trainees on the boat, and so it's uh, it's a little bit easier to manage than some big overlapping heads. Absolutely, and so, you know what, we did this year, because that jib was brand new, I said, I'm not going to be chafing it out. I'm, I made the inner force day removable. So now if I'm flying that jib, that force day is gone and it's out of the picture, which is great. I mean, I, the clue still gets a little bit of chafe, but I'm not killing the sail every time I tack. Yeah, I think a removable inner force day can be a great idea. We've got one as well. Ours is a, is a Dyneema uh, inner force day. It works great. Main, main purpose for ours is to uh, control mass pumping. Yeah, we have one as well, and it's also Dyneema. And... Um, We've flown the stay sail on it a few times. Coming down the coast, we we sailed with it for over 24 hours in a in a little low that came by us. So um, yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you guys regarding this inner force day thing and chafe. For the folks who have a roller furler on their inner force day, is there any kind of like a sleeve or roller that you've ever seen people do to help the jib roll around the furled up stay sail? inner force day um there is a product you can get that's a it's a kind of a sock uh that goes over a furled sail and uh uh, you need a you need a halyard to be able to pull it up but it zips up and you you uh you pull it up and zip it down over it so um it's also an alternative to having a uv cover on the sail so it can make it a little bit lighter in that regards if that's a concern but that, that would help a little bit with uh, with a headsail being able to roll around that inner inner four stay. It doesn't. Yeah, it's just it's fixed. It doesn't actually roll, does it? No. Right. No. Um, is that an ATN product? No, there's different sailmakers that make them, and and it is it is a, a it's usually like a lighter nylon, so it's a lot more slippery than than umbrella on a UV cover, which um, which is a bit grippy. Right. Did you guys used to have roller furlers on the Inner Force Day by any chance? Totem came with a with a Inner Force Day with a furler set up, and when we were doing a re rig in two thousand early two thousand eight, um, I looked at it and I just thought, um, even though we were looking to cross cross the Pacific at least, um, it was a lot of hardware dedicated to um, not a lot of actual use in in what I expected. And so I opted to remove it all with the remo- with the uh, removable inner four stay and then a staysail with um, soft tanks on it. And 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 there, we've had a few times where I thought, wow, it'd be awesome to just be able to roll that um, that staysail out. Western Indian Ocean was quite lively. 
Um, average wind speed was probably 33 knots and uh, forward of the beam. And uh, there would have been some times where having that just roll out would be nice. But uh, but we got by with just a partially furled headsail. Mm-hmm. Right. The downwind is easier to furl. It's funny we all have in the same boat here with the removable inner force day. I think it's it's super prudent and super smart. Um, all right, cool. So let's talk about the measuring process. Did, Andy, you, you, did you measure the boat yourself for these new sails? Yeah, we were in Seward, Alaska, and so there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to get Jamie uh, or a sailmaker to get there. So, um, and I I'd measured boats before, so I was pretty confident and be able to do it. Um, but it's definitely one of those things you you have to get. It's so so crucial to having good good sails that fit your boat to be able to measure properly. Um, and so I think I did I did I measured you know multiple times for each sail just to make sure I was doing it right. Yeah, how long did that take you? Oh. It took me a couple hours the first, the couple hours the first time, and then just kind of going back and forth and checking, um, you know, after that. And then once we had the, the bowsprit set up, um, I had to kind of redo some of the measurements. But yeah, it's worth the time to do it right. Yeah, right. I, I remember measuring for our sales too. It was quite uh, quite intense. There was a nice uh, sheet that you sent us, Jamie, or, and um, it was it was a lot to get through. I was really surprised at some of the numbers you guys were looking for. It's one of the things I actually like about um, working with people in this way, in that sailors actually learn about sails somewhat. You you get you get to be a better sailor by understanding what goes into building a sail, what what different um, dimensions are taken to build it and design it well, and and I think some of those like tack cutback, you can then understand the importance of that. So oftentimes, like a not so uncommon mis, um, repair on a mainsail is to have the tack cut back not right and that bottom most slide in the luff then gets loaded up too much and it's obvious if you know what you're looking at that there's a big horizontal wrinkle coming out of that that the tack cutback is wrong um, but if you don't if you're not aware of that um, you don't know that it's not right and going through the process I think helps you understand those those little details yeah for sure Andy did you find that to be uh an educational process? Yeah, somewhat. You know, I, like, because I had done it before, I was I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. Um, but a similar story, something I actually helped uh, some friends of ours who were new sailors uh, measure for their new sails. And the um, the husband of this couple, he learned so much from just going through the through the process with me of like how of you know getting all these numbers right and why you need, why you know these numbers are important. And uh, so I definitely can see how educational it is for for people. Yeah, yeah, I think it's huge. It's great. And uh, I guess, is it is it normal for people to measure their own sales? Or does someone, if they're like in the U.S. and they can't, then they have access to North Sales or whoever it is, do they come out to the boat and measure? Is that, is that the normal process? Yeah, if you're buying from a, a more conventional um, brick-and-mortar sail loft, then then oftentimes the, 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 the salesperson will come out and measure the boat for you. And, and no question, it's one of the things that by this remote approach to sailmaking, uh, you know, I, I can't do, Phil can't, uh, can't do unless we happen to be in the same place, which actually happens often enough, and then I'll go through the process with people. But, but uh, typically, yeah, the sailmaker comes out and does that for yeah, you. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Um, so, yeah, sail, so you, you got your measurements in, you got your, uh, and then you did the three sails. You said 120, the code zero, and the, and the new main. Yep. And what about the staysail? You said it had a staysail? Yeah, we had actually had a, a staysail made um, a few years prior to that. So that sail was fine and new. So Yeah, gotcha. 
we were all good there. And Jamie, did you guys just get a new main recently? Is that what I remember? We did. We did. We're on our third mainsail. So Totem's mainsail, uh, when we bought her, was <clears throat> was made by a, a loft in California. And it was terribly underbuilt um, and ugly as sin. But it still structurally was okay to keep going for a while. And I, I look at sales as, as, a, as a value proposition and how many miles, how many uh, um, dollars per mile do I pay for that sale? And so I, I, um, I tweaked that sale and, and made it work out until we got to Australia, replaced it there with, um, with a, a sale that I had done. And, uh, and then that sale made it from Australia to, uh, to Mexico. And uh, in December, we, uh, we bent on a new sale, which I'm super excited about. But we have hardly gotten to use it. We did about a 900-mile trip from Northern Sea Cortez down to Puerto Vallarta with that sale. And, and it's superb. Uh, really happy with it. Good. So what makes it superb? And um, yeah, I mean, what are the details that we're talking about? What, what makes a good sale uh, versus a bad sale? Well, number one, it's again, it's matching your intentions well. And so with this with this sale for us, um, we're still actively cruising and we were intending to go across the Pacific this year before we got shut down in Mexico again with COVID. But um, uh, but with this sale, we opted for um, Dacron. The Hydronet would be awesome, but it was pushing our budget after we'd done a big refit of of other items on the boat and so um, uh, we chose um, dimension poly and AP blade Dacron with a two-ply leech it's um, it's got a titanium dioxide coating of the fibers which helps reduce UV exposure and since we see a lot of time in the Sun um, this the sale should last uh, probably 20 or 30 percent longer than than a, um, uh, a sale with different Dacron choices um, but then it's it's five full battens and it's um, uh, we ended up uh, replacing with new batten hardware that's quite nice it's really um, uh, articulates well it works really well and um, and having built uh, uh, the prior sale we were able to refine the shape even just a little bit more on this one and so it's it's a very sweet looking sail and then to cap it off I think uh, for us we put our big totem logo um, <laughs> silk screened across the sail and um, and it came out really well okay cool can you can you give me more detail on refining the shape what what are you talking about with that well sail shape is um, there, there's an ideal shape for your conditions and whether it's flatter or fuller where you're gonna sail and sail shape is done by um, two two areas. One is by broad seaming, and one is by um, luff curve and matching the luff curve to the mast bend profile and what you're able to tune the mast to. And so, um, having having had a, a prior sale and um, knowing what we did on that, and then tweaking tweaking these um, things so that. Um, I could I could uh, refine the shape a little bit to be more what I wanted. I think my my old main, which I I wasn't um, part of the uh, the design on, uh, it was a little bit flat up high and a little bit fuller down low. This is not a zoom sail, and with this sail, we're able to tweak it in, and and uh, it's actually it's quite nice. Hmm. Okay, that mast bend is super intriguing to me. Andy, were you aware of that when you were doing some measurements and thinking about your mainsail? Yeah, I was, and we I kind of measured for it, and I talked to um, Jamie and 
and uh, Phil and I exchanged a lot of emails back and forth as this whole process was unfolding. And so, uh, yeah, we, we, cut, we accounted for it. And uh, the sales, our sale is actually a radial cut sale. And it just it looks beautiful and it's got a really nice shape to it. Um, and we have we have three reefs in it, and wh- that's one of the things that Jamie and I kind of went back and forth on was how what the how many reefs and our old mainsail, believe it or not, had four reef points in it, which just makes the sail heavier, and uh, it's it's not a it's not a great setup. So we went with three and uh, full battens, and we had already had the tides track uh, mainsail uh, luff track with slides, and that's so we just changed out the hardware there, and um, are really happy with it. Uh, yeah, that's pretty sweet having the tides. Jamie, you don't have the tides, do you? We do. We do. We're on our second tides oh, track. Do. We do. The uh, it's it's a good economy system. Um, UV will kill the track in mm-hmm. anywhere from five to seven years, and you have to be aware of that. Um, it'll last a little bit longer if your left curve and your left hardware um, alignment is done really well. I've seen them where, uh, like that low slide is is got too much load on it, and between UV and wearing there, it'll it'll fail and can fail in as little as four years right okay i have no experience with that so i can't comment but uh sounds nice would like to have it <laughs> you know we've got we've got the three reefs and we got the double leech and um that last uh five feet of getting that sail up is is a lot is a lot i'm trying to figure out how to reduce some of that weight or, re- or the friction i think it's still my reef lines are heavy friction so um getting those last two bits up is pretty tough but uh it's a good workout yeah yeah so it's it's good for your your health but at some point it gets kind of old yeah a few other details that i think of um that i i like uh uh, loose footed mains i haven't built an attached foot main in probably a decade i think they make no sense whatsoever and I sort of got tired of people saying you need to have the foot attached because it makes the boom stronger, which is absolutely baloney. Um, it's it's not true. All it does is it makes the bottom of the sail shape lousy because you're taking a three-dimensional shape and pull it into a two-dimensional um, uh, boom profile, and it, and it just messes up the foot of the sail. Another one is... Um, I've started doing more sails where the head of the, the main I'm doing with a ring instead of a headboard. So me, most sails are made with a, an aluminum headboard. And the, the general rule of thumb on that is the head width is 4% of the E dimension. That's the max foot of the sail. And that was an old uh, IOR racing rule reference. It has no other value whatsoever. And what I found is that an aluminum headboard, um, it'll it'll cut and chafe under side of your mainsail cover. It can if it's a snugly snug fitting cover. And so by um, changing to a, a big stainless steel round ring that's webbed into place, you eliminate that issue and you lose approximately a postage size amount of sail area. Postage stand size um, sail area um, so it's a, it's a subtle thing but I, I like how it, it sets up mm-hmm yeah definitely we've got that ring yeah. I love that ring uh, I was gonna say on my main so what I've also done uh, most most sails they'll have uh, uh, reef rings uh, uh, reef hooks and a ring set up so there's two rings webbed together through the left uh, reef of the sail what I found is that on long downwind passages sometimes the metal ring will bang into the mast and will drive you insane by by um, uh, by the end of your watch 
and so um, I've replaced those with uh, Dyneema loops through the through that luff. Uh, reef ring and and it works great it's actually it's an easier way for reefing it's better um, to grab onto to pull that sail down that the rest of the way and there's no there's no sound um, so that was a nice little improvement and then another another one that I've done is uh, low friction rings that I've lashed onto the leech end of the reefs because um, what happens is if you just go through the the leech reef rings and that line is then pulled down tight through there the, the reef line and what will happen is a couple things you can you can have the sail get pinched in and the sailcloth chafe in there uh, which is usually not a good feature and the line itself the the Ruckerson press rings on one side is nice and round and smooth but the other side has a seam there and the line if the if the angle sets up just right the line will chafe there and um, I, I got fed up replacing reef lines because of that chafe so installed a low friction ring lashed about six inches of gap between the reef ring and that and now the leech reef line goes through the low friction ring no chafe issue whatsoever on the sail or the line itself and uh, so it's a nice little improvement yeah we, we've done the same on our boat i think i must have seen a picture of your boat or read some post somewhere so i did the same thing and uh, it, it does make a huge difference. The sail lays so much nicer when it's reefed. It does. Subtle little detail, but it's a nice one. Oh, yeah. It's a great one. It's a great one. Um, sweet. Now, let's... let's uh, we didn't talk... We sort of talked about sail cloth options. We kind of hit it briefly. You might want to get back to it. Because I think, Jamie, you and I have the same exact cloth don't we we've got some dacron i think that's right it's uh ap blade um there yeah sailcloth is it's a big topic um there are several different kinds of of premium dacrons um if you're gonna go cruising uh long distance or you want your boat um your sails to last a while and you're in tropical places the sailcloth choices um are are huge in that and and uh andy's hydronet is an awesome material that does really well with with uv over time and longevity um, a real common mistake in dacrons though well first of all there's there dacrons are not created equal dacron is is polyester fiber and conventional polyester fiber is one grade of dacron <laughs> Um, but there's a high tenacity polyester that that makes higher end Dacron sailcloth, and it's it's simply it's lower stretch, uh, and 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 it's stronger, so it makes better Dacron sails. Um, it's easy enough uh, to uh, it, and it costs more. So um, more conventional Dacron is is regular polyester. But another area of big um, important choices is the is the um, high aspect or low aspect Dacron. A lot of times um, sailmakers will choose a high aspect Dacron and what that is is it means that there's bigger fill uh, fiber bundles. Uh, fill direction is across the short side, short length of the roll um, and the idea with that is to get um, an alignment with a straight line between the head and the clue. That's the highest load in the sail. And so you want those fill yarns um, to be as strong as possible. But if you have 8 or 10 ounce Dacron and you make the fill yarns bigger, it means the warp yarns have to be stronger. Okay? And, and so the intent is, oh, high aspect, there's a lot of load on that, on that axis of the sail, that load path. Um, I want lots of uh, fill yarns there. 
And the problem is that when you go cruising, um, UV is the number one thing that kills sails. And so when you when you reduce the warp yarn, that's the yarn that goes along the, the, the length of the roll or the panel, um, that yarn gets really, really small. And what happens with UV degradation is that the, the UV rays um, degrade the outer fibers in the yarn bundle. And, and the inner ones are sort of protected. The outer ones act like sunscreen except when you have those small warp yarns that have uh, very, very few fibers in the bundle. And so as the UV degrades those outer fibers of that bundle, there's nothing protected inside. And so if you get mediocre quality Dacron and, and high aspect um, uh, cloth, bigger, yarn, bigger fill yarns, smaller warp yarns, then what happens is those warp yarns fail really quickly. I've seen it happen in the tropics in two years, and it rips like tissue paper. Um, so I think three, three to four years is actually pretty common for that type of sale. Um, but if you go low aspect, there's a closer balance between the fill and the warp yarns. And those, so those warp yarns are bigger uh, bundle sizes, and they, they hold um, structural integrity longer. I see. Probably more than you ever wanted to know. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, of course, it's super interesting. It helps you make informed decisions. Uh, super cool. <clears throat> yeah, I know, of course, for me, budget was uh, top priority. So. Yeah, and I, I think that you can make, you can make one last note. You can, if, when budget's an issue, and it's always an issue for, for, for us, uh, for cruisers, um, at some level, um, but you can have cloth if you're going to go cruising in the tropics that is maybe not this high tenacity polyester fibers uh like like ap blade or or challenge marblehead is another one that's um this high tenacity yarns you can go on with with more conventional polyester fibers as long as you choose uh low aspect ratio in the sailcloth it'll still um last longer from uv uh, that uv issue mm -hmm. All right, cool. What about, uh, Andy, what, what do you have for downwind sails? So we have this, uh, we have a um, asymmetrical uh, spinnaker that we, now we can fly it off the bowsprit that we, that we installed. And then we have that, um, that code zero. And the code zero, really, I mean, we use the, the ASIM a lot less now because the code zero is on a, a continuous line furler. And so, you know, we leave it up and we're on, a, especially on a longer passage, it's, it's up. And then the jib is always, the general is up as well. And we can kind of roll, you know, roll one in, roll one out. But a lot of times we find ourselves just sailing with that, with that code zero um, and anywhere from close reach all the way down, you know, to a pretty deep, um, pretty deep broad reach because the bow spread extends out so far that it really does get that code zero out uh, from behind the main enough to be able to sail mm. deep. And what's the approximate percentage of that code zero? How does that, you know, what's the size of it? It's 160. Oh, 160. Yeah, you said 160. All right, So it's cool. a big sail. Yeah. It's a 160, but but because it's a free-flying luff, it also has positive luff curve, and uh, it doesn't have the hollow, the leech hollow that a typical headsail does. So 
if you were to get a 160 Genoa, um, the cruising code zero would be larger sail area because of these these elements to it. It's a big sail. Yeah, that is big. So if I was, I don't have anything like that. If if I was gonna get one more sail, code zero sounds like it might be the one to go for because it sounds like it's good upwind and downwind. It's pretty amazing. The other thing about it too is you can fly it, and I mean we're flying it in you know five knots of breeze. Um, if it, and if the wind is just forward of the beam, five knots of breeze. I mean the boat's powered up pretty pretty big time and uh, and sails fast, especially because it's a we're a more performance oriented boat. The the sail just really matches that um, that performance and so. Uh, yeah, we've really, really been impressed with it. We actually even fly it at night too. You know, like we, a lot of times we take down an ASIM at night. Um, the the code zero is so easy to to put away, and uh, if the wind came up, hmm. that we'll fly it through the night. All right, I see. Interesting, because the loof, the luff is not rigid. It does like you gets that curve you were talking about, Jamie. Yeah. So the, even though it's on a furler, it's on a furler. It's a torsion rope, um, and it's that's inside the the luff, and it's really easy to furl up. I mean, Jill, my wife can you know she's in the cockpit, she just eases the sheet, and I'm on the furling line, and just roll that sucker up quickly. Right. Especially so if, if you are, have depowered, you know, come off the wind to depower it a bit. Right. Blanket. If so, am I, am I thinking this through correctly? If you wanted to get more of a asymmetrical spinnaker shape and have that uh, luff or leech, whatever you want to call it at this point, curve out more, can you ease the halyard? Does that make sense? Yeah, you, that does make sense. You you could. Um, yeah, potentially. You could ease the, ease okay. the halyard a little bit and okay. Just, get a little more shape. Okay. Yeah. Just thinking that through i sailed i did sail with one code zero on a um a catamaran and it was tiny to me it was like this is almost useless it seemed too small but your 160 sounds like a great option yeah it's big it's fun yeah the the term code zero is really uh it's it's um it's very misleading as so often as downwind sails are jenniker and and asim and symmetrical and uh mps all these different names for them they're mostly uh, sailmakers brand names and code zero is is really a racing sail um with a very specific um purpose and that somehow the term caught on for this application cats usually call them screechers but they're effectively the same sail and that's why i really try to um, distinguish it as a cruising code zero um since code zero is stuck enough but it is it is a very different sail than just code zero as a racing application and it's such a great sale. It is so versatile. When we set off, we bought an ASIM, all-purpose asymmetric, and uh, it was okay. But in now, what, uh, 54th, no, 64,000 miles, I think we've done, um, that sale has so little um, use. Until we got to the South Atlantic, it, it got a lot of use there. But short of that, it's just not that versatile a sale. It's much bigger than even a Cruising Code Zero, and it's very light material ounce and a half nylon so it's it's wind angle range and wind velocity range is is really fairly limited in what you can do with it versus a cruising code zero smaller than that it's still a big sail but the sailcloth is 3.3 3.4 ounce um, you need that weight to be able to go upwind when when you get going forward of the uh, the beam with the wind angle the the loads go up high so um, that that sailcloth weight enables a, a higher wind range and the area being smaller enables a higher wind range than an asymmetric 
because of the, the, the shape of the sail, you can fly it. Depends on the sailcloth and the boat, but uh, oftentimes people can get up to 60 degrees apparent wind angle. It sails really well to maybe 135-ish broad reaching, and, and at, at some point, um, an asymmetric has a has a better sweet spot for that kind of 110 to 140 wind angle range, broad reaching. But um, a cruising code zero, you can also pull out and um, and push down to deeper angles. Still, uh, I know boats that have sailed with them at at 175, 180. All right, cool. That might be in the, uh, in the future. Maybe we'll have to see what happens. Um. Now, talk about, did you guys ever buy used sales? Uh, I I haven't, no. Andy, what about you? Have you bought used sales? No, I never have. Yeah, I haven't either. And I, I just, I mean, is that even a thing? Should people be thinking about used sales? I think it's a viable option when budget's a, a real issue, but there are some pitfalls with it for sure. Um, geometry is pretty important to get to get uh, to get right uh, mainsail's got to be pretty spot on it's hard to modify a mainsail very much with reefs and battens um, a genoa is a little bit more forgiving in the geometry you can recut uh, to some extent when you recut you you can misalign the uh, the the fibers in the cloth with the load path and so of a sail that's going to have more bias stretch and that can be a problem but the real issue, I think, with um, with used sales is knowing the the structural integrity. If you're buying a used sales because um, uh, you're on a budget, um, that's fine. That's that's fair. Um, but know that the sale that you're buying has the integrity to actually do what you expect it's going to do. I know a lot of cases where people bought a used sale. They were told it was lightly used and it it was in great condition and look at the sailcloth it's good and then only to find that it uh, it failed in, in a very short period of time and so um, especially sails that have been in the tropics if they've got a lot of UV exposure um, I would not count on that sail even if it looks good you can't tell UV damage from from Dacron very easily it's tough to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of a story. Um, when we bought our boat, it had it had been sitting um, in Panama for a year, uh, basically just abandoned by the previous owners, uh, they, and um, then went up for sale. And I believe that they had rolled the Genoa the wrong way, so that the UV protection was on the inside. And so when we got this boat with this sail, it wasn't that old of a sail. It might have been five or six years old at that time, but the leech and the foot were shot on the on the sail. But the rest of the sailcloth looked pretty good and was was really good. Um, and we considered at one point, like, well, maybe we can cut that section off and and just make the sail smaller. But then you lose your luff, and and so the whole cutting cutting the sail thing to fit your boat, yeah, it doesn't doesn't work that well. No, no, that's right. Um, you, you affect the geometry and the in the in the um, fiber orientation, and at some point you're just you're throwing good money after bad. Yeah, I, I did a I did a quote for a somebody in the Caribbean for for a new headsail, and uh, the last minute they they canceled out they were getting ready to cross the atlantic and they had this sweet deal on a new um uh, a new used sale and the owner assured them that it was in good condition it wasn't much used and i said that's cool uh you know don't worry about backing out of the the new sale but make sure you inspect it really well and i detailed out a bunch of things to look at and they said yeah no it all checks out it's great they left and within about four days of crossing to the azores they blew the sale out 
Yeah, that's what I would say is basically you get what you pay for with used sales. I mean, you can spend quite a bit of money actually on a used sale that will last half as long as a new sale. So in the end, you should have just gone with the new sale, really. I mean, that's kind of what I found over the years of, with students and stuff. Yeah, there's some there's some patterns to look for. Um, number one is the stitching, and it's easy to test stitching. It's just you take your thumbnail and you scratch your thumbnail across. Uh, the leech on mainsails is the area that's um, most prone to failure because nobody's perfect about covering the main as soon as they're done sailing for the day, as putting the cover over or zipping up the stack pack. Whereas a headsail, when it's furled, the cover's there, unless you roll it the wrong way, which I don't recommend. Um, but, uh, but the scratch test is an easy way to tell. If the fibers in the stitching fray at all, then there's a lot of UV damage. If they break, there's no integrity to the cloth whatsoever. It's rotten and to the, to the thread whatsoever. And they can be re-sewn, but what's important then is to prove that the sailcloth is still okay. If the sailcloth is rotten in the same way that the stitching was rotten, well, it doesn't make sense to spend $300 on re-sewing the sail because it's just going to blow out. And with sailcloth, um, you have to look for, you can look for discoloration in the Dacron, so you can get areas that look like they're slightly yellowed or they're patinaed. That can be a sign of UV damage. Um, you can also, if you set the sail up with the sunlight on one side and you're looking through it towards the sun, if you see pinholes through it, that's a sign that um, it can be a couple things. It can be UV damage. It can be its bias load enough that the tightness of the weave is, is weakened. And then the, the, the resins, the melamine resins and stuff that they put in, in the finishing process of the sail start to break down and you get these little little pinholes of light shining through. So that's another another way to tell. Um, there's only one real true test, which is which is um, to do a tear test. And if you're if you think a sail may have UV damage, if you're gonna buy a used sail, ask if you can tear the tail and the sail and you're gonna they'll look at you like you're crazy but what you do is you make a small incision parallel to those fill yarns of the sail um, one inch long and then tear it more and if it's hard to tear then it's fine but if it's relatively easy or easy to tear the sail shot the those warp yarns are rotten it has no strength whatsoever uh that's a really good point that's exactly what we do when we're um we, we've been making sail bags <laughs> so we go and we take the old sailcloth and we, we will do that little tear test to see if it's even worth making a bag out of because we can't sew into shot cloth to even make a bag so yeah you can't tell and people probably don't love it when they're walking down the street and all the stuff falls out of the bottom of the bag because it blew open <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, that Genoa that they rolled the wrong way was great cloth. We use that to make bags. Absolutely. Just not on the leech edge. Exactly. Just not that section. All right, guys. I know we need to wrap it up here pretty quick. So um, any final thoughts that you have about sales and sales? I mean, I guess uh, I would just no. say to people, you know, making sure you do an honest assessment of the sales you have and then don't don't be afraid you know a lot of people just wait and wait and wait until it's too too long and then your sales are completely blown out or they fail at the wrong time it's like you know assess your sales and then get the process started of, of getting the right sales for you and your boat before you think you need to because um, you don't want to wait too long and then all of a sudden you are stuck somewhere with really bad sales or sales that are torn and you're trying to fix them and uh 
in you know, some crazy out of the way place and so yeah we saw that we saw that in the Indian yeah. Ocean um, a, a boat came up after passage and they had torn both their sails and they said can you come help repair and I said okay got to the sails and and went like this and they tore like tissue paper and I said there's nothing I can do uh, and this was in Chagos and there's nothing in Chagos and so I figured out a way to baby the sails to uh, to Reunion Island and I, I made new sails for them but from that point till we got to South Africa there was probably six other boats they were all blowing out sails in in very inconvenient places and they were all stunned that they were three and four years old but they had enough uv exposure that they were failing so you can't just say oh my sales are only a few years old they should be fine it's an ongoing process to keep up with with the structural integrity of the sales um, i just also add that sail trim matters with sales a lot of cruisers are like oh, i'm not a racer i don't really care like andy i i was a racing sailor as well i i used to race professionally when i was a sailmaker and um, and so, yeah, we tweak sails. But even as a cruiser, if you're going along and the top of your, your Genoa is twisted off too much and the upper leech is just flapping away, you're fatiguing the sailcloth. That sailcloth will degrade because of that much quicker than if you rig a barber hauler and, or move the, the lead forward, if nothing else, and get that trim right. So the trim really does matter. All right, good stuff, guys. Really appreciate it. Excellent discussion. There's so much we could go into here, but we're gonna we'll, we'll wrap it up here, and maybe we'll do this again some other time. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Andy. Great. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Good to see you guys. Yep. Good to see you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts, or visit morsalpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram at morsalpha expeditions. The music is by Tim Erickson, my brother. You can find him at timericksonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found. <laughs>